From KCRW and McSweeney's, this is The Organist. I'm Andrew Leland. On today's show, which we produced in collaboration with The Creative Independent, we're excited to present a story from an organist regular, Rachel James. It's about poetry and money. And there's actually nothing more for me to add here, so I'll just let Rachel take it away. Here's Rachel James. So do you guys have plans for the future? Yeah, that's a funny question. What if we said no? I was sitting on the poet Bernadette Mayer's couch trying to talk about money. Just a few weeks before, the organist asked if I wanted to make a story about the financial life of an artist. And actually, there was a question I'd had for a long time about this exact thing. Why is Bernadette Mayer so broke? Here's this poet who has influenced so many writers, Mm -hmm. and she's taught in so many universities, even now. Her legacy is large, and yet she really is living in an impoverished situation. And why why is that? I'm asking the poet C.A. Conrad. So you're not going to use this? I can tell you this? You, You can say this is off record i want to see off this record thing off okay record. off record so yeah it gets messy trying to talk about money there are a lot of reasons why bernadette mayer is broke a lot of opinions too maybe i was naive to think if you're pretty famous and you've been influential in the literary scene and in the art world for over five decades and you're living, you'd be set. And set is relative, but living in the United States, you'd make more than $17,000 a year, which is what Bernadette made last year. One reason it's hard for me to talk about money is that at one moment, nothing feels more real than needing it. And yet, at the same time, money's only an abstraction of value, a set of rules a group of people have agreed to follow, and the rules can change. The poet Anne Lauterbach writes, poetry protects language from serving any master. And I think that includes money. Poetry reimagines the rules for one of the most commonplace aspects of life, language. But does this work require not being beholden to money? She's one of the most amazing living poets. Here's C.A. Conrad again, on the record. C.A., who grew up in a working-class factory town in Pennsylvania, makes a direct link between economic class and poetic innovation. I believe very strongly when I look at Bernadette, the reason she was able to come up with these ideas that were so fresh, as opposed to these men who stole her ideas, is because those men went to Harvard and all these schools and they did what they were told to do. Bernadette didn't have these luxuries. She had to think for herself. That's what poverty affords you. I know because I come from this. When you trust your creativity as a working class person, like Bernadette has done, you can actually get to see more than these poets who come from a wealthier background and they go to Harvard and these places. And, you know, Bernadette winds up being this person then that everybody follows and emulates and and stands on her shoulders because she broke down all of these different barriers for the way poetry could be. She opened the whole story up. The whole conversation about poetry changes with her. For a lot of poets, the question of how to live has always been complicated. 
The poet Anselm Bergen grew up with Bernadette. Anselm's mother is the poet Alice Notley, who was friends with Bernadette, as was his late father, the poet Ted Berrigan. It's very basic, but it's complicated because you can't necessarily or easily make poetry be the center of your life because it's going to be very difficult to make a living off of it. So you always have to do something else. So to talk about the history of poetry and money, I think you just have to pick a place to start and a context, like a cultural context. So if you're talking about poets in the United States in relation to money. Poems don't sell, like they're not commodities. What I hate is capitalism. Although as a poet, I always tried to earn a living as a poet. I know it's stupid, I know it can't be done, but I figured, let's do it. So, what do you think? (laughs) What do you think? Okay, my name is Bernadette Mayer, and I live in East Nassau, New York, 1201262, born 5-12-45, so I'm 73 years old and still poor. I mean, you'd think I would be not so poor at the age of 73, right? Bernadette lives in a two-story wooden house in East Nassau, three hours north of New York City. It was built as a church in 1910. I thought the house was pink, but Bernadette insists it's red. The entire landscape is covered in ice. It's freezing but sunny. Philip Good, Bernadette's partner of over 30 years, opens the front door. Bernadette's sipping wine, sitting across from the wood-burning stove. I feel like you're very too close. Okay. Do you want me to... No, no. I mean, (laughs) you are too close. Is it okay for me to sit here? No, it's okay. Okay. I'm not freaking you out? (laughs) No. I mean, maybe. (laughs) Well, I don't want to freak you out. (laughs) Okay. No, uh, don't worry about it. Okay, cool. Mm. Um, So, let's start at the beginning. Bernadette described her childhood home in Ridgewood, Queens, as creepy because everyone who lived with her there died except her sister, Rosemary. Her mother, Marie, worked as a secretary. Her father, Theodore, was an electrician. He died when Bernadette was 12 of a cerebral hemorrhage. Her mother died two years later of breast cancer, and her uncle, who also lived in the house, died when she was 18. He had a heart attack. It was like every two years I had figured out that somebody would die. So when nobody died after my uncle died, I was kind of figured my system didn't work. (laughs) It was kind of horrible, though. In 1960, Bernadette's sister Rosemary married the artist Vito Acconci and left home. Now Bernadette lived alone and started writing. I was left in this uh, apartment listening to the people downstairs who had covered their couches and chairs with plastic. And they would make that sound that's made when people sit on or touch plastic. Plus, their baby was crying all the time. So in order to drown out that sound, I started writing poetry. I would just make notes in a notebook, and they started out to be not something that people would think was poetry. The only thing I knew about poetry at that point in time 
was whatever I had learned at school, which was, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. My love is like a melody that's sweetly played in tune, etc. Which was nothing like what Bernadette was writing. I was being a synesthete at the time, but I wasn't telling anybody. The form of my synesthesia was seeing letters of the alphabet in different colors. They think I was nuts. I mean, synesthesia was not really talked about. No one saw these early poems. No one even knew Bernadette was writing, except her sister. When I was first writing, I used to write where the whole poem or and the words in the poem seemed like either a certain color or, in the case of this poem, I held my thumb up before my eyes and it seemed very thick and you could feel like thickness in your whole, in my whole body, I could feel it when I read this poem or when I wrote it. It's called Thick. <laughs> Hashish, the coast is rumored dead. The slow boor had the room, worm and bug gagging him, higher than a gourd shouting whoosh. A shower and the rum, you piggish shrew, to oust your mother from the same shroud as you. Owl, bitch, hog, and whore met at the bog's mouth to bludgeon the womb. It was only a gag. At least the authors brought his luger. He's ogling that myth. Gob of rum for the wretch with the hookah. The oil route grew, bulging the gulch with rush and shout. There boils the ocean. Do you feel thick when I read you? <laughs> Did you write that poem before they used the phrase language school poets? That's Philip Good, Bernadette's partner. Oh, yeah, way before. The language school emerged in the late 60s as a response to mainstream American poetry. Bernadette's often associated with the language poets. She taught a series of workshops at the St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York. A number of poets, for example, C.A. Conrad, who you heard from at the beginning, have argued many of the language poets were influenced by these workshops, but that that influence was often underplayed. How did that phrase come about? I'm not really sure. There were a group of poets who, I don't know what exactly they believed in. It seemed at first to be not having any meaning, but I found that hard to believe because so much poetry has a deliberate lack of meaning because the only way you can express some aspects of living would be without meaning. So I couldn't understand why they felt that it was such a big thing. But so it became a a school, like the New York school, the language school, but we had all a lot of us had been writing poems without meaning just because of the love of the sounds of the words and I don't know, for the language poets it, it was much more philosophical and as such stupid. But I probably shouldn't even say that. Boy, will I get in trouble. Our society values things that make sense. Commercial work tends to be easy to understand, but Mayer wrote poems that resisted sense-making. So right at the sentence level of her work is a resistance to commerce, to the market, to money. 
This is one of the things Anne Lauterbach was talking about when she wrote that poetry protects language from serving any master. I mean, just encountering the so-called real world, you didn't really want to be a part of it. You wanted to be against it. This is Catullus number 42. This is probably the only time you'll ever hear a real translation of this poem. Come here, all of you, my hendecasyllables. All of you, help. Bernadette says she's unconcerned with categories. She's translated classical Greek poetry. She's written sonnets. She once wrote an entire book in one night. Her oppositional spirit led to work that was celebratory, work that acknowledged the urgent lack of female perspectives throughout history and in the literary communities around her. What I was hoping to do when I first realized that there was such a thing as the poetry world was to get more women to write poetry because I felt so deprived of even ancient women's ideas, much less to speak of current women's thoughts, it seemed like women were always being prevented from writing. Here's the rest of Catullus 42. Bernadette translated the poem with her sister, both read Latin and some Greek. She found the poem in the Greek Anthology, a book of the few remaining fragments of basically sexy poems from antiquity. Fucking whore, you give me back my notebook. Give it back, you whore, you fuck. I want my book. Don't you give a shit, you animal, you filth. I wish there was something worse I could call you. Nevertheless, I think this is not enough. Maybe if nothing else can do it, a blush could be forced from the rigid face of that bitch. We've got to shout at her again, much louder. You fucking whore, you give me back my notebook, give it back. You whore, you fuck, I want my book. But we make no progress, nothing, she is not moved. We've got to change our way of talking and reasoning. If you can get the advantage more this way, oh, virtuous and chaste one, please give me back my notebook. I always felt very angry that women were so excluded from everything, including fucking writing. So something had to be done about that. One of the things that was different about poets like Bernadette Mayer and other women of her generation, like Alice Notley, who you'll hear from in a minute, was their insistence on writing about money and sex and motherhood in a direct way. They resisted the popular labels given to women poets. I'm thinking of the way female poets were so often mythologized as mad women, depressed, universal, or aristocratic. Here's the poet Alice Notley's youngest son, Anselm Berrigan. There was a connection that my mother and Bernadette had, and then Anne Waldman a few years later, where they had these babies who were us and then they had to figure out how to write while raising children as my mother has talked about there were no there was nothing in the language there was nothing in poetry that dealt with 
as content what it meant to be a mother. So she started writing about it. And Bernadette started writing about it. And then to write about that is also to recognize different aspects of the economy. How are you going to get food? How are you going to get money? How are you going to make this work? Okay, this is for Conrad's mother, who doesn't like poetry but likes this poem. This is Alice Notley reading her poem, Circa 81. People with more money than us don't seem to trust us, not strictly true. We have hardly any ever. Maybe they shouldn't trust us. We're always looking to borrow five, ten, or twenty dollars. We only want to have just enough money today. They think it all goes for pills. How much do they think pills cost? We have no expensive habits, I mean, as in other people's worlds. Clothes, travel, decor, entertainment. We do buy books. We don't have a phone for seven years, no checking account. Of course I'm not being objective. It was my life. As a matter of fact, I feel positively defiant about it. I liked our economics. They were transparent. I understood money thoroughly. I had guilt from borrowing, but never the guilt of having something. The only thing that suffered was Ted's health. It suffered considerably. I can't get at the poem of this. I think of 81, 82 as rather ugly years, casting cold shadows black against the sky of a sun disappearing. But back to economics. Nobody trusts the poor. The poor are more interesting than others, almost uniformly. They're crazed, resentful, struggling, paranoid, excessive, anxious about their faded, rickety possessions and their stoops. Their patches of sunlight or shade on stoops, their children going wrong, and all the disorder of the garbage cans. Everyone else boringly has clean, cold spaces, new things, private schools, self-filled conversations, rooms full of shadows where rage should be, and the voices of people subject to the fits of demonic radios in their heads. Well, I've had my radio implant at times and known people with louder ones. Everything the voices scream about relates to money one way or another. I'm being self-righteous so I can own my own past again, and so my present, no bondage or confinement of shame of not making money. It's a talent people are born with. Poetry isn't its life's condition. Poetry's so common, hardly anyone can find it. Money's common, but much more cornerable. Poetry's air and money's ore, a certain mineral that slides across distances into hands it fits, born with a shape, hand-shaped like money, they say, that cute, clean, white hand. I can't get to the poem of this, though I choke with it again, being there in another decade, being here's not much different, the rage of unremunerated work. Can't you hear the voice in my head? Can't you hear this fucking voice in my head? Of course I'm not right. I'm never right. I'm fucking lazy, unskilled, and you deserve your money. I was very proud of the fact that I had all three of my children for a total of $800. <laughs> but, you know, I had them because I wanted to have children. I'm not sorry because they were so much fun to hang around. And they would distract you from all your woes. But when I was raising them, I realized maybe I had done them a disservice because I would add up these columns of numbers of where the money was coming from and how much money I needed. And I would never have, there was no way I would ever have enough money. So besides being a poet, I also decided to have children. 
which is kind of absurd, right? I was actually born in Massachusetts. Here's Marie Warsh, Bernadette's eldest daughter. She works as an historian. Bernadette and my father, Louis, had moved to the country because they wanted to have children in the country, which is where all three of us were born. Bernadette and the poet Louis Warsh moved to the only small town they could find where they didn't need a car, Lenox, Massachusetts. Up to this point, Bernadette had been cobbling together odd jobs teaching. She was known as the poetry lady in a Harlem public school. She worked as a proofreader for Random House. She edited magazines and books. But in Lenox, she took four years off from taking day jobs. So did Lewis. At first, they were on welfare. Then they both won grants from the National Endowment for the Arts. And they had a really idyllic life of raising children and writing poetry. You know, my mom liked to sleep late, and so my father would wake up with me when I was a baby and, and take care of me for a while, and then I think my mom would wake up and they would sort of switch off, and they worked it out so that they were having always time to write. It just sounds like it was really kind of a lovely time to really just have those only those two priorities and not have to go to work. To be rushed, to be kissed, to be irrationally married to words, and produce wildness like a child or two. During this time in Lennox, Bernadette wrote one of her most famous poems called Midwinter Day. She wrote it all in one night on the winter solstice, December 22, 1978. I don't know why. I know I don't like to buy Christmas presents, but if I had some money today, I'd buy love surprises and present them to the people on my list. They are Louis, Ray, Harry, Sophia and Marie, all the Warshes, Rosemary Mayer, Margaret de Courcy, Grace Murphy, Alice Notley, Ted and Anselm, and Edmund Berrigan, Raphael Sawyer, Lynn O'Hare, Every year, people gather around the country to celebrate this book by reading the whole thing out loud. This still happens today. Something about this list of people Mayer wanted to buy gifts for, being read aloud again and again over the course of 40 years, makes the gifts real. In the poem, Bernadette uttered the presence into existence. Knowing my notebook, the moon is coming up. I have something to do with that. Tonight, in 1980, she got a call for a job back in New York to take over as director of the Poetry Project. By then, she really needed the money, and though she didn't want to leave Lennox, the family moved back to the East Village. And in the city, the economy worked very differently than it did in a small town just three hours north. Everything was bound up together. Poetry, work, living, friendship, family, socializing, working together, being in conversation, arguing, and it was very friendly, but it was also very competitive. When people went to go read at the Poetry Project, the pressure was on to have new work, to bring your new stuff, the best of your new stuff, and to really lay it out there and put the work out there. It was very wild. All these poets living on top of each other in this tiny scene in the East Village created a kind of informal economy. The rents were still low, so it didn't take that long to make enough money to keep an apartment. And if you weren't being published, even in more conventional literary scenes, and poets like Bernadette weren't at the time, you could publish yourself. We could stand on the corner, a whole bunch of poets, and plan a magazine. And then we could walk 
and this is ideality, right, to everybody's house to get poems from them. And we could put them together and walk to a mimeograph machine and run it off on the machine. So just take one day to put a magazine together. But how long did that kind of thing last? It didn't last long. After that, nobody could afford to live in that neighborhood at all. And now, outrageous. We lived in a rent-controlled apartment in the East Village that they were able to get into in 1976. That apartment was tiny railroad, no doors, filled with roaches. The bathroom was a toilet. The bathtub was in the kitchen, which is also where the front door was. But it only cost a few hundred dollars rent. And the neighborhood, the East Village, hadn't gentrified yet. That really took place another seven, eight years later. It wasn't just that the rents were cheap, so people lived close to each other. There were also ways to make money that aren't available anymore. It was actually possible for people who didn't have trust funds, who didn't have careers to support their poetry, like William Carlos Williams, who was a doctor, or Wallace Stevens, who was the president of an insurance company. It made it possible for people without a reserve of money to spend the majority of their time writing. If you get up in the morning and there's no money, then you say, okay, we're going to go raise money. So you might look around and see if you have any letters signed by authors of some repute. My father would write to people, and then he'd get their letters back, and then he'd sell them sometimes. And he'd write to people and ask them some questions and then sell the letter. He also forged signatures, and he learned certain people's signatures and would, would then go and sell these things. I probably shouldn't be talking about this. Ted taught me how to write exactly like him, how to sign his name in books so that when I sold them, they would be worth more money. <laughs> that seems generous. Yeah, very. She was often working a lot of different jobs and waiting for checks, and she would write out these kind of elaborate budget schemes of, you know, I'm getting the, this money on this day, I have this much money until that day, I need to make that money last for groceries, etc. Marie Warsh, Bernadette's eldest daughter, and so there would be all these kind of notes all over the house with notations. Bernadette didn't have a bank account. She kept her money actually in a book of Shakespeare's sonnets. <laughs> so my kids always knew where to find the money. It was in the sonnets. <laughs> sometimes a lot, sometimes very little. <laughs> what better book to put it in? She's a hedonist too, and so... One of the things I think about a lot growing up is that, you know, even though we didn't have a lot of money, sometimes when she did have money, we would go out to dinner and have a great time. Even though, sure, she probably should have been a little more thrifty and put that money away for something, she really also wanted to have fun. Bernadette didn't have a bank account, and without one, and this is the same as today, if she needed to cash a check, she'd go to the check-cashing place, which takes a percentage. Then, if she needed to pay a bill, she'd get a money order from the post office, which takes a percentage. So she'd cash the check, take the cash to the post office, then send the money order to, say, Con Ed. Being poor is no picnic. So it makes you even, yeah, so you're, it makes it, you're losing money at every, every oh, step yeah, of the every, way. Oh, yeah, everywhere you turn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have a telephone. 
Uh, my parents didn't have a bank account. When my father died, my mother only had about $40. Like, they would raise money on a regular basis. When I was a kid, I guess a younger person, Ann Walman's mother, who was a good friend of mine, Frances Lefebvre, said to me, your problem, Bernadette, is that you think the world owes you a living. And I said, Francis, I think you're right. Bernadette has lots of great ideas about how to solve the problems of making money. And a lot of them involve getting money for no reason, just for existing. But wouldn't that be so great (laughs) if we had our guaranteed annual income so we wouldn't have to fucking worry about, you know, what to do for money? She talks a lot about utopia just in her poetry. I think it's more a utopian idea of creating this place where there's not want. Bernadette devised what she calls a simplex equation, meaning rough, for how much everyone should get. You add up the yearly income of everyone in the United States, then divide it by the total U.S. population, including newborn babies. She arrived at $21,000 a year. And that would be my guaranteed income, which would be fine with me. I would be happy. A guaranteed income isn't just a utopian ideal. Politicians have toyed with the idea since the 16th century. Right now, it's at the center of the former tech executive Andrew Yang's U.S. presidential campaign. Yang is a long shot, but the idea of universal basic income is edging toward the mainstream. In the 1980s, like today, artists living on the economic margins felt like they didn't have enough of a legal or governmental safety net to protect them from falling into poverty. So these poets had to figure out ways to survive and support each other. Very informal kind of miniature economy. It became harder, I think, for people to live that way. But this is how Bernadette lived. This is how Eileen Miles lived. This is how Allen Ginsberg lived. The precarity of a poet's life was something Allen Ginsberg was very conscious of. He enjoyed immense success in his lifetime, traveled all over the world giving readings and workshops, but he actually never made very much money. In 1966, Ginsberg founded the Committee on Poetry. It still runs today. It's a nonprofit that helps writers and artists pay medical bills, finish projects, publish. When Ginsburg established the committee, he wrote this charter statement, read today by Harry Dodge. Committee on Poetry. The committee's money will be used to sustain artists and their projects in times of stress, give joy to writers and artists who wish to escape unpleasant circumstances and travel or meditate, publish works of art which have no immediate commercial vehicles for publicity, help unlucky poets and painters avoid confinement in jails and madhouses, and otherwise aid in spiritual emergencies. Allen Ginsberg, March 22nd, 1966. America, I've given you all, and now I'm nothing. America, $2.27, January 17th, 1956. I can't stand my own mind. America, when will you be angelic? When will you take off your clothes? When will you look at yourself through the grave? When will you be worthy of your million Trotskyites? America, why are your libraries full of tears? America, after all, it is you and I who are perfect, not the next world. Your machinery is too much for me. You made me want to be a saint. There must be some other way to settle this argument. 
It occurs to me that I am America. I'm talking to myself again. In 1994, Bernadette survived a cerebral hemorrhage, the same kind of stroke that killed her father. She was 49 years old. The Committee on Poetry and the poetry community in general rallied to help with medical costs and the sudden loss of income during Bernadette's recovery. I wanted to know if Bernadette thought of the stroke as a before and after situation, since so many things in her life changed. I really don't want to talk about it. Yes, Phil. Bernadette always thought she was not going to live past the age of 50 because both her parents died at the age they didn't make it past 50. Philip thinks that's why Bernadette produced so much writing in the first 30 years of her life. He says when she had the cerebral hemorrhage, she asked him not to call 911. I find it profoundly depressing. Nobody seems to realize all the things I can't do. I mean, I can't dance. I can't play any games. I can't play basketball anymore. I literally cannot run. I mean, this is insane. She also has trouble writing by hand and can't use a computer because of changes in her vision. Computers became integral to the kinds of editing and proofreading jobs she'd had most of her life. Soon after the stroke, it became clear that continuing to live in New York City was not going to work. Philip says the emotional and physical tolls were too high. They moved upstate in 1998. Then Bernadette, and this came as a total surprise, inherited money from the poet Hannah Wiener. They were friends, but it never occurred to her that Hannah even had much money. Her Manhattan apartment was sold after her death, and the money was to be divided in four. Bernadette received a quarter of it. It was almost enough for a down payment on the Red House. And we had another friend who, who was able to help us do something with the bank, and we got... Money laundering. Well, we got this place, anyhow. <laughs> so, money laundering. Well, that's a whole other story. But one of the reasons this place was so amazing, there was room for a lot of books. So the apartment on 4th Street and Avenue A had a lot of books in it, a lot of poetry books. And we knew we could move the library up here. They filled the second floor with books. Then the first winter heating bill came, and they didn't have enough money to pay it, so they sold the books. Now they've been living in the house almost 20 years. Bernadette continues to give readings, which pay anywhere from zero to $100, sometimes more. She runs the porch school with Philip, a series of summer workshops at the house. She gets disability support each month, and Philip has a seasonal landscaping job. Bernadette was also awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2015. There are different kinds of poverty. And there's a difference, I think, between being poor or being broke because you've made a choice to live a certain way. Yeah, I'm being poor and being broke because you have no ability and you're not being allowed to make money or you're not being given chances, you're not being given opportunities. They overlap because if you choose to live a certain way, you run into some of the same problems. My mother could have stopped being a poet, but she couldn't have stopped being a poet. But she could have done some other kind of work. That wasn't how she wanted to live. That wasn't what she did. I don't really feel the greed. The poet C.A. Conrad. C.A. says they are proud to stand on the shoulders of Bernadette. She was one of the reasons they felt they had a place in poetry, partly because she wasn't afraid to talk about money. I'm happy just being alive to write poems and to make sure that I can survive. And it's often not really good. Last year was really rough, you know? I mean, 
the last couple of years, I would make under $1,000 a month for the whole year, and that's really difficult, but I still do it. I won the Pew Fellowship in the Arts. It was a big deal for me to win that. I was two months behind on my rent. The word eviction was being used on my answering machine. And the problem with the grant is it is Sunoco family oil money. It's the dirtiest possible money. But I took it. And I took it because I believe that poets can refine that money. I will take your dirty, filthy oil money because you know what? I'm a citizen of the United States. My taxes have already been killing children in Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iraq. Like maybe I can take your filthy, dirty Sunoco oil money and write some beautiful poems and wake people up about the conditions of this world and what America's doing. You're making that available for me in the first place. You must have some kind of penance in mind. So maybe that's what the poets are here to do. We live in this culture in which part of being free, so to speak, means giving in to a desperate, totalizing need for money all the time in order to get by. And that's the basis of, of our culture in so many ways of our society. And Bernadette's somebody who looked at that and said, I don't think this is the way people should live. I don't want to live this way. I mean, I would wonder if she still feels that way. I don't like to speak for anybody, but I, you know, I imagine that that's still true. Were you ever on the brink of quitting poetry for making money, more money? Gee, I don't think so. In a strange way, poetry and money are old, old friends. The written word was born from a need to keep financial records. The first documents in human history were found in Egypt and ancient Sumer. They recorded accounts, lists of property, cattle, sheep, and wheat. It was only after these debts were logged that people thought we could record other things, like the Epic of Gilgamesh and stories of the creation of the world, of floods, of gods. When I think of the economy today, the exchange of goods is far more abstract. The health of the financial sector comes before the health of the human. If the economy is thriving, people are suffering. So what do we choose to invest in? Poetry constantly undermines our ideas of what value is. Bernadette believes no one should suffer under economic precarity. For her, the answer isn't to pay poets more money for writing poetry, it's to pay everyone just for being alive. Maybe poetry will be at the center of the fight for social happiness over economic growth precisely because it cannot be exchanged like currency. I have never lost interest in writing poetry, maybe because it's so impecunious. <laughs> I don't know what that word means. It means you don't make any money doing it. I should know what that word means. Yeah, yeah, you should. <laughs> Walking like a robin. Take three or four steps, then stop. Look, smell, taste, touch, and hear. Is there anything to eat? Oh, look, there's some caviar. It must be my birthday. Thanks. I must be very old, like 70. I guess I'm falling apart. I'll just sew myself back together, but will it last? Please take a piece of me home. 
Each piece is anti-war and don't pay your rent. In fact, remember, property is robbery. Give everybody everything. Other birds walk this way too. Today's episode was produced by Rachel James. Many thanks to The Creative Independent, whose support helped us make this story possible. The Creative Independent is an online resource for creative people. They publish interviews, tips, and how-to guides from working artists. They explore themes like collaboration and process, and they also cover practical stuff like the financial lives of artists, which is how we ended up collaborating with them on this episode. So many thanks to Brandon Stosi and Willa Kerner at The Creative Independent for their help. The committee on poetry that Allen Ginsberg founded is still around, and there's a small group of poets who've organized the Friends of Bernadette Mayer Fund. It coordinates donations to the committee, which then gives that money to Bernadette. So you can find a link to that on our website, which is kcrw.com slash the organist. Special thanks also this week to Harry Dodge for reading the charter statement of the committee on poetry, and also to Callie Gardner for their research on Bernadette Mayer and the language school. I also want to thank Sandy Byzenski at the Smith College Media Studios for letting me sneak into these soundproof chambers so often. The Organist is produced by me and Ross Simonini. Our managing editor is Laura Irving, and our contributing editors are Jenny Amint, Naila Orr, David Weinberg, and Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Our editorial fellow is Jonna McCone, and our editorial friend is Matt Frassica. Our intern is Abby Madan, and our cool stepdad at KCRW and beyond is Nick White. This episode was mixed by Lyra Smith. If you like this podcast, I hope you've subscribed to it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't subscribed to it, why don't you subscribe to it? Thank you. Also, it'd be great if you posted something about it on your social media and maybe rated and reviewed it on iTunes while you're at it. This is the last episode of season five of The Organist. KCRW, I'm happy to say, has greenlit season six, so you can look forward to more stuff like this hurtling down this feed before too long. First, we're going to take a short cryogenic hibernation to recharge our batteries. But in the meantime, we have plans for a series of quality mini episodes, so we're not going to be gone for long. Look out for those. And as always, you can drop us a line at KCRW Organist on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Cplomp, if any of you guys are on Cplomp. Uh, you can also send voice memos from your mind into the email address, which is organist at mcsweeney's.net. One last note, we're going to be doing a live organist event in Las Vegas as a part of the Believer Festival next week. I'll be on stage interviewing the amazing novelist Tommy Orange, the author of There, There, which has won all of the awards. That's on Friday, April 26th. You can get tickets at believerfestival.org. I hope to see you there. And okay, that is it for season five of The Organist. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you.